Section 12 Europe and the Faith This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe and the Faith by Hilaire Belloc Section 12 Chapter 3 Continued If it was a conquest such as we have just seen postulated, and a conquest actuated by the motives of men so described, then this old anti-Catholic school, though it could not maintain its exaggerations, though, for instance, it could not connect representative institutions with the German barbarians, would yet be substantially true. Now, the moment documents began to be seriously examined and compared, the moment modern research began to approach some sort of finality in the study of that period wherein the United Roman Empire of the West was replaced by sundry local kingdoms, students of history, thenceforward and in proportion to their impartiality, became more and more convinced that the whole of this anti-Catholic attitude reposed upon nothing more than assertion. There was no conquest of effete Mediterranean peoples by vigorous barbarians. The vast number of barbarians who lived as slaves within the empire, the far smaller number who were pressed or hired into the military service of the empire, the still smaller number which entered the empire as marauders during the weakness of the central government towards the end, were not the sort of which this anti-Catholic theory, mistaking its desires for realities, presupposed. The barbarians were not Germans, a term difficult to define. They were a very mixed stocks which, if we go by speech, a bad guide to race, were some of them Germanic, some Slavs, some even Mongol, some Berber, some of the old unnamed races, the Picts, for instance, and the dark men of the extreme north and west. They had no conspicuous respect for women of the sort which should produce the chivalric ideal. They were not free societies, but slave-owning societies. They did not desire, attempt, or even dream the destruction of the imperial power, that misfortune which was gradual and never complete, in so far as it came about at all, came about in spite of the barbarians, and not by their conscious effort. They were not numerous. On the contrary, they were but handfuls of men, even when they appeared as successful pillagers and raiders over the frontiers. When they came in large numbers, they were wiped out. They did not introduce any new institutions or any new ideas. Again, you do not find in that capital change from the old civilization to the Dark Ages that the rise of legend and of the romantic and adventurous spirit, the sowing of the modern seed, coincides with places where the great masses of barbaric slaves are settled, or where the fewer barbaric pillagers or the regular barbaric soldiers in the Roman army pass. Romance appears hundreds of years later, and it appears more immediately and earliest in connection with precisely those districts in which the passage of the few Teutonic, Slavonic, and other barbarians had been least felt. 
there is no link between barbaric society and the feudalism of the Middle Ages. There is no trace of such a link. There is, on the contrary, a very definite and clearly marked historical sequence between Roman civilization and the feudal system, attested by innumerable documents which, once read and compared in their order, leave no sort of doubt that feudalism and the medieval civilization repose on purely Roman origins. In a word, the gradual cessation of central imperial rule in Western Europe, the failure of the power and habit of one united organization seated in Rome to color, define, and administrate the lives of men, was an internal revolution. It did not come from without. It was not a change from within. It was nothing remotely resembling an external, still less a barbaric conquest from without. All that happened was that Roman civilization, having grown very old, failed to maintain that vigorous and universal method of local government subordinated to the capital, which it had for four or five hundred years supported. The machinery of taxation gradually weakened, the whole of central bureaucratic action weakened, the greater men in each locality began to acquire a sort of independence, and sundry soldiers benefited by the slow and enormous change occupied the local palaces, as they were called, of Roman administrations, secured such revenues as the remains of Roman taxation could give them, and conversely had thrust upon them so much of the duty of government as the decline of civilization could still maintain. That is what happened, and that is all that happened. As an historical phenomena, it is what I have called it enormous. It most vividly struck the imagination of men, the tremors and the occasional local cataclysms, which were the symptoms of this change of base from the old high civilization to their dark ages, singularly impressed the numerous and prolific writers of the time. Their terrors, their astonishment, their speculations as to the result have come down to us highly emphasized. We feel, after all, those centuries, the shock which was produced on the literary world of the day by Alaric's sack of Rome, or by the march of the Roman auxiliary troops called Visigoths through Gaul into Spain, or by the appearance of the mixed horde called, after their leaders, Vandals, in front of Hippo in Africa. But what we do not feel, what we do not obtain from the contemporary documents, what was a mere figment of the academic brain in the generation now just passing away, is that anti-Catholic and anti-civilized bias which would represent the ancient civilization as conquered by men of another and of a better stock who have since developed the supreme type of modern civilization, and whose contrast with the Catholic world and the Catholic tradition is at once applauded as the principle of life in Europe and emphasized as the fundamental fact in European history. The reader will not be content with a mere affirmation, though the affirmation is based upon all that is worth counting in modern scholarship. He will ask what, then, did really happen. After all, Alaric did sack Rome. The kings of the Franks were Belgian chieftains, probably speaking at first Flemish as well as Latin. Those of the Burgundians were probably men who spoke that hotchpotch of original barbaric Celtic and Roman words later called Teutonic dialects, 
as well as Latin. The military officers, called from the original recruitment of their commands, Goths, both Eastern and Western, were in the same case. Even that mixed mass of Slav, Berber, escaped slaves, and the rest, which, from original leaders, was called in North Africa Vandal, probably had some considerable German nucleus. The false history has got superficial ground to work upon. Many families whose origins came from what is now German-speaking Central Europe ruled in local government during the transition, and distinct, though small tribes, mainly German in speech, survived for a short time in the empire. Like all falsehood, the falsehood of the Teutonic theory could not live without an element of truth to distort, and it is the business of anyone who is writing true history, even in so short an essay as this, to show what that ground was and how it has been misrepresented. In order to understand what happened, we must first of all clearly represent to ourselves the fact that the structure upon which our united civilization had its first five centuries reposed was the Roman army, by which I do not mean that the number of soldiers was very large compared with the civilian population, but that the organ which was vital in the state the thing that really counted, the institution upon which men's minds turned, and which they thought of as the foundation of all, was the military institution. The original city-state of the Mediterranean broke down a little before the beginning of our era. When, as always ultimately happens in a complex civilization of many millions, self-government had broken down, and when it was necessary, after the desperate faction fights which that breakdown had produced, to establish a strong center of authority, the obvious and, as it were, necessary person to exercise that authority, in a state constituted as was the Roman state, was the commander-in-chief of the army. All that the word emperor, the Latin word imperator, means is a commander-in-chief. It was the army which made and unmade emperors. It was the army which designed and ordered and even helped to construct the great roads of the empire. It was in connection with the needs of the army that those roads were traced. It was the army which secured, very easily, for peace was popular, the civil order of the vast organism. It was the army, especially, which guarded its frontiers against the uncivilized world without. Upon the edge of the Sahara and of the Arabian desert, upon the edge of the Scotch mountains, upon the edge of the poor wild lands between the Rhine and the Elbe. On those frontiers the garrisons made a sort of wall within which wealth and right living could accumulate, outside which small and impoverished bodies of men, destitute of the arts, notably of writing, save in so far as they rudely copied the Romans or were permeated by adventurous Roman commerce, lived under conditions which, in the Celtic hills, we can partially appreciate from the analogy of ancient Gaul and from the tenacious legends, but of which, in the German and Slavonic sand plains, marshes and woods, we know hardly anything at all. Now this main instrument, the Roman army, the instrument remembered which not only preserved civic functions, but actually created the master of all civic functions, the government, went through three very clear stages of change in the first four centuries of the Christian era, up to the year A.D. 400 or so. And it is the transformation of the Roman army during the first four centuries, 
which explains the otherwise inexplicable change in the society afterwards in the 5th and 6th centuries, that is, from 400 to 600 A.D. The turn from the full civilization of Rome to the beginning of the Dark Ages. In its first stage, during the early empire, just as the Catholic Church was founded and was beginning to grow, the Roman army was still theoretically an army of true Roman citizens. Footnote. A soldier was still technically a citizen up to the very end. The conception of a soldier as a citizen, the impossibility, for instance, of his being a slave, was in the very bones of Roman thought. Even when the soldiers were almost entirely recruited from barbarians, that is, from slave stock, the soldiers themselves were free citizens always. As a matter of fact, the army was already principally professional, and it was being recruited even in this first stage very largely from the territories Rome had conquered. Thus we have Caesar raising a Gallic legion, almost contemporaneous with his conquest of Gaul. But for a long time after, well into the Christian era, the army was conceived of in men's minds as a sort of universal institution, rooted in the citizenship which men were still proud to claim throughout the empire, and which belonged only to a minority of its inhabitants, for the majority were slaves. In the second phase, which corresponds with the beginning of a decline in the letters and the arts, which carries us through the welter of civil wars in the third century, and which introduces the remodeled empire at their close, the army was becoming purely professional, and at the same time drawn from whatever was least fortunate in Roman society. The recruitment of it was treated much after the fashion of a tax. The great landed proprietors, who, by a parallel development in the decline, were becoming the chief economic feature in the Roman state, were summoned to send a certain number of recruits from their estates. Slaves would often be glad to go, for hard as were the conditions of military service, it gave them civic freedom, certain honors, a certain pay, and a future for their children. The poorer freed men would also go at the command of their lord, though only, of course, a certain proportion, for the conscription was very light compared with modern systems, and was made lighter by re-enlistment, long service, absence of reserves, and the use of veterans. The End of Section 12